Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. And that, my friends, is a sound that will not leave my ears, thanks to this month's donor pick. Welcome, listeners, to the second of two midweek episodes here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to take on Jennifer Kent's The Babadook, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Reluctantly, I'm here, Patrick, reluctantly. For Women's Appreciation Month, our faithful donors have chosen this female-written, directed, and performance-led, creepy yet thoughtful horror film for our conversation pleasure. And I imagine for some, a chance to potentially hear one of us squirm a bit talking about it. So without delaying any more, I'm going to go ahead and give our spoiler alert. Uh, this is a movie that is um, really worth the time to watch, in all, in all honesty. And so if you guys want to enjoy the conversation more, please feel free to watch it first and then come back and enjoy the conversation. So with that, we'll get into our one-word takeaways. Aaron, you want to get us kicked off with that? Sure, I'd be happy to. My one more takeaway is the word more. First time I watched this film, I didn't get it. And honestly, the second time I watched this film, I also didn't get it. This is my third viewing. I was distracted the first couple of times by what I found to be an annoying child performance that at the time I thought was really the center of the film. It's still hard to bear at times for me, to be completely honest with you. There's so much loud whining and screaming going on. No matter how realistic that is, it's just grating. And I thought that I would be scared more than I was. But this viewing, something changed, and I experienced what I can only describe as a brilliant and surprisingly moving eye-opening metaphor on the topics of grief and child resentment. That is to say, this movie is so much more than most horror films I see. I think many fans of the genre are probably like me prior to becoming a film critic, which is when I watched this the first couple of times, where we expect horror to be all about the scares, blood, gore, etc. Sure, they're present somewhat in this movie as well, but it's the psychological and emotional reasons behind them that really makes this one a terrifying film. It's not the fear of a literal monster underneath the bed. Yeah, that's a good one-word takeaway, Aaron. And I mean, I think it's it's accurate. As someone who was watching this for the first time, I didn't really know what to expect going in. I'd heard different things about it. And I mean, we joke about this a lot, about how my my stomach for, for horror is very, very, just very weak. I, I don't like being scared. I don't like jump scares. I don't like feeling tension. And in all honesty, I've enjoyed being able to explore some of the other types of horror because it's such a big, big genre. I mean, there are so many ranges of that. And Reed Lackey, I would think, is probably one of the one of the better sources to go to when it comes to, okay, what kind of horror is this? What kind of horror is that? When when it came out, uh, I guess a couple of years ago or last, I can't remember when it came out, actually. um, I asked him, I said, what is it that about this that might get me anxious. And we just had a really great conversation about anxiety and about how horror kind of plays on that. And 
So I really went into this one knowing some of the elements that would exist just from conversations that I've had with people. And I knew that there was more to it than just the horror aspect of it. And so I really tried to get beyond those types of things. And the word that I came out with was the word raw. And really it was about the performances, the art direction, the simple screenplay, everything about the film screams raw. There's this very little that is exhibited in the film that feels rehearsed, polished, or made up. Anytime we see Amelia, she looks tired, disheveled, ready to snap at someone or even break down. And, and there's this unapologetic tone that seems to exist in this world that we are placed in. It's like from personal experience, I know in part of what this feels like, of what this world looks like, seeing it in basically two colors walking around, not having any kind of hope. I've, I've battled depression in my life. I haven't experienced grief to the level that her character has, but I understand what not having hope feels like and what wondering if I'm ever going to come out of it feels like. And as a dad of a six-year-old, one of the things that really stood out to me was the way she reacts to her son. Because there are pockets of her performance that I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. And I'm not battling grief. And it really got me thinking about what's wrong with me or what is it about her character that, that makes me connect with that. And in a lot of ways, that was the hardest part to watch. Not a scary monster coming out to give me a proverbial boo, but really seeing her react to her son and trying to work through this grief that she's been experiencing for seven years. I mean, it's incredibly effective and, and I can appreciate that more than anything else. Um, if I were to revisit this or if I, if I say I'm going to hesitate to revisit this again, it's not going to be because I'm scared of the monster. It's going to be because of everything else that's going on, which says a lot about Jennifer Kent and what she's done as a writer and director in this. But what I wanted to do was start off the conversation by asking a question. I think that this is something that, we see in movies like Child's Play, The Babadook, and other movies that center around children. And there's something about that that I think already invokes a sense of scariness. And I wanted to ask the question to you first. What is it about these types of horror that involve children that makes it so scary? Well, it's a great question because it's something that I feel like affects me on a regular basis. Anytime there's a kid in a horror movie, I'm extra anxious going into it i'm a little extra nervous child's play is a great example one of the few films from my childhood that i have never revisited i was terrified by that more so than nightmare on elm street more so than friday the 13th it was always child's play that really scared me to death now that also has the added feature of it being not only a child but a doll which is a whole other creep factor in and of itself <laughs> it's like like it's like it you know you get like the clown thing and the doll type thing coming and it's something about kids though. And, and what I have come to think is that it revolves around the fact that kids are inherently sweet. They are innocent. They are harmless. And so you're taking this thing that you think of in nothing but safe terms and this person this type of person in your life that you always have the feeling of wanting to protect like you're more apt and more in control than they are 
and you're giving them this power because they're becoming the scary thing. And so it's terrifying to me. The Omen growing up was another one that I couldn't stand to watch because the, and I didn't even have kids yet at that time. Now I have kids and I think it's gotten even worse for me. For some reason, it just, it amps it up for me in a big way. And I can't stand seeing kids turned into anything quote unquote evil. And of course, in this movie, Sam is not evil, we learn, but there are moments when he feels incredibly possessed and he comes off as if he is going to be the killer, as if he is the Babadook. And it scares the living crap out of me because I don't want to view my child as something scary. Uh, and that's that's the main reason I think it is for me is just because of that innocence that we place on kids. Uh, do you do you think that there's any other reasons or do, does it bother you at all? I don't even know. Maybe you it, maybe it doesn't bother you. It doesn't bother me. It creeps me out. And I think it's because of that sense of innocence. I recently rewatched Poltergeist, uh, the, the Spielberg 80s movie. And I remember, just like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, really enjoying those movies growing up. I, and I think it was because I didn't quite get that. I didn't quite get what was going on. And the thing about kids is that we were all kids at one point. And I think that's really where the connection is, is that we understand the world of kids and we observe it from an adult's point of view. But when we're children, experiencing child's play, or poltergeist, or even something like the Babadook, we, first of all, I don't think kids would necessarily be experiencing these things, but if they were exposed to that, it wouldn't be something that they would understand. And so I think creative directors like Spielberg and Kent show us that we can connect to the child in us by seeing these characters and their performances. And I understand some of the frustration that you felt in Sam's performance because it can come across as very obnoxious. I will say that having a six-year-old son close to age, this is probably one of the first times that I was really like, wow, he just did something that Carson did and nothing on the evil side or, you know, <laughs> getting crazy. But there are moments when we see him calm in one instance and then just crazy nuts in another one for some unknown reason until we find out what those reasons are. And I battle that with my son because he has the same kind of temper that his mom and dad do. He can just go off the handles if he doesn't get his way. So his motives are different. But I think having a child in that role, whether or not they get taken by the monster or they play a part in the story, I think it's the connection that we have not only as parents but as adults looking back on our lives and saying, yeah, I was like that or I have a child like that. So I think it's being able to connect our childhood with those characters in some way, shape, or form. If not directly, then maybe indirectly. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's and it's definitely an accurate performance. I mean, it's something that we can all relate to once we have had kids that are the, the age that Carson and your son is right now. I mean, I went through this for sure. And I think it's just for me, you know, I, I imagined those times in my life when I have a six-year-old sleeping in the other room. The last thing in the world I would ever imagine is that that kid is going to come at me with a knife or that kid is going to be the one to attack me. Like that is a safe, safe place in my head. And you're taking something incredibly safe and turning it scary. 
Whereas, like a clown, like I'm not scared of clowns. I know some people are, but I can understand that. To them, that's a funny, humorous, safe place. And you're taking that safe place and you're turning it into something terrifying. Which is what a lot of horror does. And I guess for me, my kids are my safe place. And so it's worse. Well, I think what Kent does here is she kind of flips the horror genre on its head in a way that she doesn't necessarily play into any of those tropes or she plays into all of them because what she does is she hides a really interesting study in human grief and bereavement behind what we would think, at least on the surface, is a typical horror story. I think you mentioned earlier, and I've read articles of people that went into the movie thinking it was going to be one thing and it turned out to be another, and they were surprised for the better. We don't, there are movies out there that deal with this kind of stuff in different ways. We have dramatic stories like Manchester by the Sea um, or more fantastical ones like A Monster Calls, which I was actually reminded of when I watched this. And I, I started thinking about how the subject matter is the same, but the packaging is different. And as someone who doesn't really get into horror by default, I wonder what kind of additional benefits or different benefits come from telling a story from a horror perspective. Well, it's fairly unique. And A Monster Calls was the first one that came to my mind when watching this because it, that one, you know, I said in the notes fantasy and fantastical, but I mean, it can kind of be horrific at points as well. It can be pretty scary to have this gigantic ominous tree that is talking to you of course it's not attacking him in any way like babadook is in this so the grief is kind of represented in a different way but it's similar it's a similar vibe through some of it and i think that it comparing it to manchester by the sea was important to me because that is a movie that is very literal on its face and it's doing this, it's doing a similar thing. It's showing us characters who are going through the five steps of grief. They're struggling to deal with it. They're struggling to process it. They're struggling to accept their loss and move on from it. And so here we see that I think Manchester by the Sea shows it to us in a way that we can relate to maybe in a, in a very tangible way where we can say, Oh, I've done that. You know, I've, I've had that exact experience. I've reacted that exact same way to my landlord, you know, kind of way. But the horror genre has a specific way of taking those emotions and letting us, I think it takes away the defensiveness in a sense, because if we're looking at something that is, us in a mirror that is a direct representation of our own human interactions we can get on the defensive initially and think i don't act like that but in a horror movie we don't have to compare ourselves to it because it's not us that something is happening it's a metaphor and that's why a lot of times metaphors are so powerful and able to affect us and kind of show us something that while manchester by the sea showed us an almost similar type of thing happening, it is more impactful in a lot of ways to see it in the Babadook because you're almost going through this journey where you're discovering it for yourself versus it being on the surface. And so you have this ownership and this sense of like 
pride almost like, oh my gosh, I get it. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating thing when you realize what that feeling might be like and you see it and you can compare to an emotion that you have felt versus an act directly. That's the best way I can think of to describe it. But yeah. it, it definitely is, has a special way, I think, of getting us to a point where we're willing to confront that maybe our feelings do get to a place that show up kind of like they do in a horror movie. Sure. That, that word confront is something that I have latched onto. And I think that's what the world of grief and depression is. It's confrontation because it's you battling this other side of yourself where you, there's a genuine part of you that wants to be away from that. You don't want to be in that dark place. You don't want to be negative towards people and you don't want to feel like life is hopeless. And yet you don't know how to fight that. And I think that a metaphor like the Babadook is one of those things that personifies it in such an effective way. Because oftentimes through the five stages of grief, or if I'm speaking for depression, it can be really scary because we don't know if we're ever going to be able to beat it. Um, I've known people with alcoholism and they've always told me, I'm always going to be an alcoholic, which tells me that every day is going to be a battle. Leo McGarry, a character in the West Wing, says something really amazing in one of the episodes. He goes, I'm not afraid of having one drink. I'm afraid of having 10 drinks. And I think in the same way, someone who battles an illness like depression or who's grieving, even if a person works through that stuff, there's still residualness with that. And I think that the story in the Babadook walks us through that and allows us to see how a person in a situation that we understand to an extent would battle something that we may not be able to articulate visually or orally or in other ways, but we're more concerned about how she gets through it. Like I never thought even before understanding what the metaphor was, I never thought about how are they going to kill this guy? I was always just fascinated with him and her and Sam's reaction to him. And I, I started, as I was watching it, I kind of started keeping account of how many times do we actually see him? And it's very little. I mean, this is a tight 90 minute movie and we don't see him really at all. And so I think that's another element of grief and depression is it's not always right in front of us, but it's lurking. We don't always see it directly and deliberately, but it's always lurking and there's always a fear. And the fact that it, I love the fact that it doesn't come at the times that we would think it would in a traditional horror movie, broad daylight. One of my most visceral moments that I remember is when she is washing a dish, she looks up across the way through her window and she sees her neighbor watching television. She looks back down, she washes a dish and she looks up and then she sees the Babadook behind her neighbor lurking in a closet. Oh my gosh, there's no music. There's no bump. You know, there's nothing that allows us as an audience to go, Oh my gosh. And I think that's by design because those types of things that we deal with aren't like that. They're not suddenly going to appear. They're just gradual and they're always lingering. 
And I think it's a great visual, personally. I think it's a fantastic way to both create tension in the movie, but also reinforce that metaphor pretty effectively. And I don't think we can get that with something like Manchester by the Sea or even A Monster Calls. The fact that we can personify something, go to battle with it, but also see it as somewhat terrifying. I Kill Giants as a graphic novel works in a similar way through the use of visuals and even the way it's sketched out in black and white, very rough and very, very raw. And and I think that Babadook is very successful in doing something like that. This is a a small cast. We've got Amelia, we've got her son Sam, we've got, of course, the monster, and then there are, are just a handful of supporting characters that they come into contact with. But really it's about those two. And that's a that's a challenging thing to do to keep your audience involved because it has to be a couple of strong performances. When you don't have an ensemble cast, you're really relying on the people that are in front of the camera. And I wanted to start off by by talking about Amelia because she puts on an incredible performance. I was thinking about this question as I finished up watching it, and I was thinking, did she really hate her son? I've never in my life seen a movie where I've really questioned that. Like I'm thinking, oh, she's just mad at him, and she's just really angry. But her performance really got me to question whether or not she regretted having him because of the circumstances. I mean, there are times even before she becomes possessed by the monster that she genuinely regrets its existence, saying things like, why can't you be normal? And if you're hungry, why don't you go eat, you know, that kind of thing. And I sat there thinking, not, oh my gosh, how could you say that? I sat there thinking, Wow, I could see myself saying stuff like that to my son. And so as a parent, how do you respond to a performance like that? I mean, do you connect to that in any way? I know you have a son and a daughter, but do you see some reality of parenting in those situations? Well, yeah, and I think this is part of what is really incredible about this film uh, is the performance here. I think it's Essie Davis, I think is her name. She's amazing in this. And the descent into madness theme is something we've seen in many, many movies before. But it is really visceral in this one. You get a sense of that, and it's all around her. It's in the black and white cinematography, the starkness of the room. It's in the quietness of the score um, we, we start off right away with that scene of her opening shot of the movie is her literally like having this spinning, like descent into a nightmare. It feels like, and just goes from there and it just kind of escalates and you, you see her battling. And I think what's so amazing about the way that she is interacting with Samuel is she is genuinely fighting against this feeling that she has of resentment toward him. Once you, once you come to understand the movie. Granted, the first couple times I watched it, I was watching it very literally, and I that was part of why I was not connecting to this film, because I didn't understand why she would be treating him that way. It didn't really make a lot of sense to me, but once I started to kind of understand that she as a character felt like she had lost her husband because of this child, and in some ways wished that her husband was back, even at the cost of not having that child. And so then you could understand some of those outbursts. 
the interactions with him is, are so realistic, Patrick. Like, I agree with you. It was terrifying to me thinking, I've snapped at my kids. And these are not completely, these are not the type of things that I've said, but the feeling that came with what I said was a similar one, I think, than what she is experiencing at times. There's one moment where she screams at him and she's like, I am the parent and you are the child, so take the pill. And I was like, ooh, like, I've done that. <laughs> like, I've done that. Like, I'm forcing him to take a pill. And like, and, and that whole concept that we live by of I'm the parent and you're the child, so you're going to do what I say. It's a really scary visual here of how that can get away from us as parents. And specifically when we're in a place that we're not in control of ourselves. It's scary, man, because we have to take hold of our own mental health in order to be able to safely parent a child. We have to be in a place where we can be calm when we need to be. It can't control us. And it is awfully hard watching her lose that control. And I think sleep deprivation is a major theme in this movie. It definitely is a spiraling slumber for her where it is increasing her exhaustion. The performance of, of the way that she becomes increasingly exhausted through the film is absolutely just heartbreaking. You can actually see cracks forming around her eyes uh, as the nights go by. It makes you exhausted for her and with her. And the more she gets into that, it becomes this demons within that she's fighting. It reminded me a lot of The Shining. The way that the psychological downfall is kind of happening and shattering in her character. And so, yeah, I mean, like, when all of that is taking place, there's no doubt that you're going to react to a screaming kid in that way. Right. She she plays it to a point where it becomes realistic and not just reactionary. You said something earlier that I tried to articulate to to our son, and that's you're in control of your emotions. And oftentimes I've seen when he starts escalating, we start escalating and then it just becomes a yelling match. And then anger starts forming and spankings happen. And I look back on the situations after they're done and I go, oh my gosh, I'm trying to tell him to do this thing. And I'm not representing that. I'm not modeling that for him. You just undercut your own message. Exactly. And so disregard the lack of respect that he's going to have for me because of that. But now he doesn't know what that looks like. I tell him calm down, but I'm saying it in a way that I am so in a rage. How is he understanding that? There's this sense of duplicity that he's seeing in his dad that especially when I lose it, I've seen what he does in the same way that Sam leaves the room after she, she tells him, if you're hungry, go eat that. And she gets up and then she goes and he's just fetal position in a corner. My son has not been that way that dramatically, but I've seen my son be really, really afraid of me. And that upsets me beyond probably anything else is to see him scared of me, to see him upset with me. That goes beyond respecting your dad. And I think this is me being personal, but I think that's a load of crap. Being scared of your parent like that is not the same as respecting your parent. 
No, and because so, it's come it's become about power and control and right. less about bringing a child up and and moving him on a path to where he needs to be. Right. And so part of what this movie reminds me of is the ability to step back, to have a safe word, to to say I need I need a minute. And there have been times when I've started to get revved up, especially if he's punched me or kicked me out of just his rage, that I will get up from the bed, I will walk out, and I will go into my office and close the door for a minute, and I will breathe. And I have to tell myself, that's okay. That's a good thing. Because then I can go back to him and I can tell him, this is why I walked away. As opposed to reacting, turning him over on his stomach, and giving him a spanking that is full of rage and power, and it's not discipline at that point, you know? I 100% agree. I think that's awesome that you're able to do that. I think everyone should... Sometimes I'm able to do that. <laughs> I'm trying to get to... Well, I think everyone time. should try to model that behavior. I mean, I've had similar... Like, the other thing is, for me, my recommendation is you have to be able to apologize to your kids. Absolutely. I- I've apologized to my kids. I've snapped at them. I've had bad days, and they have felt the rage when it comes to, you know, I'm screaming about something that is so in- insignificant and minuscule and I've learned I can come to them and they're older now and they understand more than they did when they were younger. But you've got to be able to say, you know what? I'm sorry. I should not have acted that way. And I'm going to try to be better and do better next time. And I think that's, again, the modeling of the behavior. Uh, and, and I see that in her character, in Amelia, she does that at different times. Like she knows that she's starting to lose it and treat him in a way that she's not proud of some of those things when she tells him to eat crap and things like you can tell like she's re she's she's having that moment of recognition when she comes out of that grief long enough to go crap uh, here like have ice cream for dinner like she's trying she's doing all the parent things she can think of to try and make up for it and so she that's what tells me that no she's not truly hating him at the at the bottom of it it's the grief that is controlling her that is that is driving that reaction to him and making it so escalated in her head. It's a much bigger deal than it would be if she was calm and happy and the rooms were filled with color, et cetera. Right. And it makes her, her character arc that much easier to follow along with and, and journey with her because we do feel sympathy and anger just the way that she does. Like we feel anger when she feels anger, but then we do feel that sympathy when she, apologizes and when she tries to make it right i think it's fantastic that we we see that resolve in the film near the end when she's able to celebrate his birthday on his actual day of birth and there's some redemption there there's some redemptive quality that that she has but there's also some redemptive qualities that he has that we don't catch early on and i think that was very surprising to me because you mentioned earlier just what a crazy performance we have from Sam that he is very eccentric. He loves magic and he's very, he's very much like a six or seven year old. I mean, there's no doubt. There's a lot in Carson that I see in him or vice versa where he's play acting, he's pretending, but he's very loud. He likes to be the center of attention. He likes to make sure that people hear him when he talks and when he doesn't, you know, say something. So it can come across as very annoying in real life as, as much as it can in a movie. But I think what I enjoyed most about his arc is that he was consistently protective of the house and his mom, not in that order. 
no matter what she did, he was always protective of her and protective of the truth. And this is something that Kent challenges us with because it's kind of like a magic show that she's giving us as well. Early on, we see his reactions to the Babadook. And we see them consistent with his reaction to his mom. And we're like, oh, so he's just projecting at this point. I mean, we know that there's a monster, but we're kind of associating just childlike behavior of he's just being a, a seven-year-old jerk that has no respect for his his mom. To me, there was a turning point, And that was when he was over at, I think, his aunt's house. And he was in the treehouse. And his cousin starts wailing on him verbally and telling him that his mom is scared of him, that she hates him. And the next thing you see is her falling out of the tree of the treehouse because he pushed her. Mm-hmm. And then the next sequence, we know, being the being the omnipotent audience here, is we know what transpired before then, but all they see is that this crazy kid who can't be controlled, who's always talking about monsters, just pushed a girl out of a tree and gave her a bloody nose. There have been situations as a parent where I've been on the parental end. I see the result of something that happened. And I mean, you've probably experienced this too, where you have your kid come up and he's like, no, she said this. And, and the other kid's like, no, but he said that. And so now you have this, like he said, she said battle. And you're like, I'm a parent. I'm going to defend my kid, but I'm also trying to be, invoke justice here and figure out, okay, how can you be fair here? And the way in which this girl and her mom completely eviscerated this family in that scene broke my heart because that was the first time I started having sympathy for Sam because he was the one being attacked. And then I started thinking, okay, if I can see the attacker at this point and feel sympathy for him, what do I do when I see the actual monster. And I think that's when Kent starts really starting to amp up the imagery and when the monster starts showing up and he leads himself, it leads himself into a place where he now says, I'm going to defend my mom. I love her. Nothing is going to change that. And I think his character arc really stays genuine throughout the course of the narrative, because by the time we get to the climax of the film, he's grown. He's, I don't say he's more mature, but I think he's more confident. And I think part of that is because she is experiencing some of the similar things that he is. And together, they're kind of teamed up and fighting together. What I love about Sam is the fact that as much as he grows, his character doesn't change. He's always been a fighter. Only through the course of the movie, we see who his enemies are. We see who the monsters are. Early on, it's his cousin. Later on, it's Babadook. And eventually it's the metaphor itself, grief, that is attacking his mom that he fights and defends. Yep, absolutely. It's great observations. And yeah, it is really heartbreaking. It's the first time that I care about him at all, to be honest, in the film as well, in the treehouse. When she tells him, your dad died to get away from you. That's what she tells him. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't really say something much worse than that to a person, to a human being, period. Kid, adult, anybody. That is a absolute, I, I just, I can't even like imagine how I would react to that, right? And so his response is understandable. Not okay, but understandable. And when you see that family, her family, react 
you understand that they're reacting fairly in a sense too. Because if my kid just got pushed out of a treehouse, I'm going to say the same thing. Stay away from me. Keep him away. Because regardless of what the reason might be, he lost his control and he hurt her. And it's almost like an omen for his mom and what she's going to be doing when she's dealing with this grief. She's dealing with these thoughts that are in her head that she can't get rid of because she starts thinking about maybe I should get rid of him and I can then die. I mean, that's what that's what the whole Oscar subplot is about when she sees her husband, her dead husband from the Babadook. It's her thinking about just killing him. And then she can die because in the book she slits her throat as well. And then she can go be with her dead husband. Like it's better for that to happen. And so it's paralleling what's going to happen later with her own arc. And it is his his whole thing. I can't tell you how different it was for me this time around, Patrick. I, I really do recommend going into movies in the right headspace in order to to see them. And it's hard because I can imagine if this movie was in a theater – and I was going to see it and had nobody to talk about it beforehand where it was just me thinking this was going to be a horror movie. I would have reacted the same way I did the first two times I saw this and I would have not enjoyed it as much because I would have expected something different. But knowing that there was a metaphor to really look for helped me enjoy this film more because Sam's arc became less of annoyance, even though it was still annoying to me. I could tell there was a development and growth to his character. And frankly, the actor does an amazing job. It's really hard with kid actors because you never know if you're just going to get them doing exactly what the adult said to do. Follow these words here on the page. Recite these lines. It's hard for them to have nuance sometimes in their performance. But I feel like his performance was an embodiment of this. It was really pretty fantastic for me. And we got to see him grow, like you said, into this person who's very protective of his mom, protective of his house, all the way up to his awesome, like, Home Alone defense moment, which was uh, literally what I screamed out was, Home Alone! Like, it's, it's, it's amazing. And when he's using his weapons, and it's it's hard for him because he's attacking his mom. Patrick, he's, like, shooting his own mom with a dart, and he's he's telling her, I'm sorry, I don't want to do this, but we have to get it out of you. Like, I have to get, I have to separate you from this Babadook somehow. We have to do that. And he understands it. And the film shows us him understanding it, but it's still on that child level. Right. Yeah. There's, there's an innocence. That innocence you talked about earlier is what allows him to say those things. We have to get the Babadook out of you. He never once sees his mom as the enemy. And he has every right to, Aaron. He has every right to see her as the enemy the way that she treats him. Even though we know that in her heart that's not what she wants, he has every right to feel that way. And yet he continues to fight for her and and to get the, the monster away. Yeah, he does. And it, and it all really comes to a head in what was a potential connecting point for me. In that moment where he's having to fight her off after he shoots her, He's attacked her and he's tied her up and he's, you can tell how like tormented he is by this whole act. And he says this, he says, I know you don't love me. The Babadook won't let you, but I love you mom. And I always will. And when you keep in mind that the Babadook he is referencing here is grief. If you just substitute the word grief, anytime the Babadook is said, 
it's really brilliant and it's really poignant when he says, I know you don't love me. Grief won't let you. That's a much different feeling statement, but I love you, mom. And I always will. And he starts to break through to her with that, right? We see her starting to come out of it and she's strangling him and convulsing and he strokes her face. And it's, it's a beautiful, brilliant moment for me because I feel like him showing her compassion is a growth arc that she learns from and she takes with her to how she deals with the grief because it's not about violently beating the grief down and winning. It's about being compassionate and understanding the grief and learning how to live with it. Yeah. He shows her that he does, which leads into one of the most interesting endings to a horror movie that in my limited capacity I've ever seen. <laughs> and let's let's talk about that. So it's it's really different from and really unexpected from other movies that have a monster at its core. One would either expect the monster to die, and that's it, or the monster gets some sort of aha moment at the end that sets up a sequel. Now I was not expecting it I would never expect a sequel to the Babadook. Especially with the 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 way the narrative plays out. If there's ever a sequel that would just be weird. But I was reading on how Kent, when she pitched this script, the execs at the studio said, well, you need to kill the monster. And she fought, Aaron. Like She fought so hard to say, no, I'm not changing the script. And I don't think it was very divisive. I think everybody that saw this was like, this is brilliant. This is great. I love the fact that the monster sticks around. Because I think if there was a better way to show that type of metaphor, then it's that. In keeping the monster in check and, and feeding the monster. Because it says a lot about grief. Does that diminish the value of this as a horror film for you? Or does it enhance it as an, kind of a, an additional kind of great thing? Like in terms of having like a, having a monster live and be protected essentially. One of the things that I pulled away was wondering how this works from a horror movie aspect. Because it doesn't follow those conventional tropes, it worked for me because of that metaphor. But I wonder if that gets in the way of it being a solid ending to a horror film. And I wanted to get your thoughts. Because you're, you're someone who watches horror, and obviously this is unconventional. But does it, does it diminish its value as a horror film? Does it make it any less horrific for you? No, it doesn't. And I, I mean, I completely agree with Kent here. She actually said in an interview that it was thankfully her having the foresight to make sure that she owned the rights to any sequels before that this was sold. And that's why she will not allow any other sequel to be made. Um, and she, she understood that it was not that kind of film. And I, I too, like you, like you, I'm grateful that mm -hmm. there is no sequel. I think it would really. It would just be a cash grab. It would not work thematically for this movie. It's not that kind of movie because it's not a real monster. And that's why this is the ending that has to happen and why I don't have a problem at all because it's not a real monster. And if, once you keep in mind, again, replace the words the Babadook with grief and it is no longer a quote-unquote monster. It is no longer an entity. It is a feeling and you don't destroy a feeling with a gun or with 
a baseball bat or with a knife. You can't banish and kill it in a physical way. And so that's what this is representing. And it is really, really stellarly impactful, in my opinion, the way that she learns to cope by locking it in the basement, by going and checking on it, self-care, understanding and acknowledging that it is ever-present. It will not go away. Alcoholics will tell you this. You mentioned this at the beginning. It's not about worrying whether or not I have one drink. It's worrying whether I have ten. This ending is like her having one drink. She's able to have a drink. She's able to not have ten. She's able to turn away and get away from that. And that is what it's symbolic of, is this deep part of her mind. And I think it goes even... That's where I said earlier, it's like that parallel moment where Samuel brings her out of her immense rage by compassion by touching her face she does kind of the same thing here to the babadook and calms it pushes it away and samuel asks like he wants to be part of this and she's keeping him away from it she's keeping him protected for now uh until he's older until he's ready to understand and deal with it and what that represents to me is like mom's gonna eventually have a conversation with her son about his, her dad, his dad's death and how it has affected her. And that's okay. But at the end, she doesn't want it to possess him. She doesn't want that grief to overcome him as well. And she goes outside the end of the movie. And I think what is maybe the final shot actually, because he asks how it is. And she says, pretty quiet today. And then she smiles and wishes him a happy birthday. Dude, you said you've dealt with depression before. I certainly have as well. Um, I've gone to therapy. I'm a big supporter and big proponent of encouraging that for folks. Um, it is the stigma needs to go away because if I had not done that, I was in a dark place. Like I was having thoughts that I could not understand about myself. And I could not feel good about. I was ner I was scared. Like I was like, why did that thought just come into my head? And what this shows me is a person that is actively working to control those thoughts on a daily basis and that is what it takes yeah is it hard yeah it's hard it's not easy but you can't just pretend it's gonna go away well that's the thing it's not gonna go away i don't i don't know that there's any place where depression or grief is ever final and you're ever able to say okay i'm over it i had a friend of mine who lost her husband to suicide and she tells me she'll never be over it because she loved him and because she was connected to him. And I think that seeing Amelia walk through this represents that on so many levels. I was looking through some articles and I came across um, a couple of quotes. One was from a, a blog that was doing a review of the movie and describing the ending they say, we see her feed the Babadook in the basement. The basement is where her husband's stuff is locked away. By feeding the Babadook, she metaphorically feeds her grief, which is kind of weird to think about, right? I mean, you don't want to feed grief. I mean, grief is bad. No. But rather than completely shutting it off and locking it away, she keeps it at bay. She controls and manages the monster the second she acknowledges that you can't escape your past. You can only learn to live with it. And if there's ever a amazing connection from that type of thinking 
to another big symbol in the book, it's or in the movie, it's the book itself. And I love this line that is creepy at the beginning, but is redemptive at the end. If it's in a word or in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. That is a true statement. And early on, we're like, oh my gosh, I've got to escape it. But by the end of the movie, we're thinking, no, you can't escape it. You can live with it and you can manage it. And there's hope in that. And I think that there's this, I don't want to call it tender because the monster is the monster. It's always going to be the monster being fed worms. <laughs> but there's there's that moment that I love where she goes, she just holds a hand up and she says, shh, it's going to be, it's, it's fine. It's okay. It's okay. And to get it from his perspective, to actually see it from his perspective was really incredible and very personal because it, as much as we personified grief and depression in this movie, we now get to experience it for a moment from that point of view, as opposed to from hers, which is incredibly interesting and very satisfying for me. Well, that leads into our connecting points, and um, we'll give you an extra spoiler alert that RCPs are the same. I kind of like when RCPs are the same because it tells me that we kind of hit on the same kind of stuff and it means we're right it means we're <laughs> no i'm kidding it's not about being right you can't be right or wrong in your emotional connection to a film don't, that's true please don't think i'm saying that I'm this kidding. is this is bonus for us it is fun it is yeah. really cool when we do pick the same thing I, I think it's just because for one thing we are similar creatures the way that you and i feel i mean there's a reason we're best friends that's always going to happen you're going to have similarities like that in your personality type and so we tend to latch on to the same emotions and the same scenes because we're we're alike. Right. So with that, I want to play a little bit of dialogue. You are nothing. So this is the moment that I call the scream. And I think we can both agree that that's the best way to describe this moment. After re-experiencing the death of her husband in this moment, she's crying, her head's down. She looks up and she says, 
You're nothing. You're nothing. This is my house. You're trespassing in my house. And she says all those things. If you touch my son again, I'll kill you. And then with all the anger and pain and resentment and torment that has plagued her, she lets out this incredible scream. Dude, I personally have done this. I remember there was a moment. Mm-hmm. It was a Sunday morning. I was in my car. It was 3 a.m. And I was battling something pretty major. And I remember just screaming for 10 to 15 seconds nonstop at the top of my lungs in my car. And not saying anything. But just screaming to the point where I could not speak. And it was coming from a place of anger and sadness and frustration. And to me, this is the moment when she gives up herself to the freedom to release everything that she's been holding. This is the moment when she stares down her grief and she conquers it. And what makes this work even better for me is the fact that in that same sequence, her scream and the Babadook screams intertwine. And the shattering of the furniture and the walls cracking and everything that were happening because of what we saw was coming from the Babadook transitioned over to her as a result of her scream. And at that moment, we see those two entities connected, but not because one was taking over the other, but because she was owning that. She was saying, I see what this is for what it is. I see the reality of who you are. And I know now that you have no power over me. And that scream, I think, was almost like a battle cry that said, no more. I'm not going to let this happen anymore. And it was so emotionally heartbreaking and celebratory for me because of the fact that I've experienced that and because I know the frustration that she feels because there's so much wrapped up in that. And I wanted her to, I wanted that for her. (laughs) And when I can experience something like that, I'm like fist pump. Yes. Scream all you want. It reminded me of a moment in a monster calls where the kid is being given permission. If you want to scream, you scream. And I'm like, yeah, Amelia, if you want to scream, you scream because you need that because that can give you power. Yeah. Yeah, I really can, man. And I completely agree with you a hundred percent. That is the perfect way to define it and what, how valuable it can be as a release of that emotion and as a healthy way for some reason, there's a stigma against this scream. This primal scream is like, oh my God, that's scary. That's awful. Why would you do that? You need to be quiet. You need to not be so loud. My goodness gracious. If it's between that and like stabbing something, let's, let's take the scream, right? I mean, this is a healthy release of emotion. It really is. And you'd be amazed at how you can feel after letting one out like this. I'm going to focus real quick on just the, the opening parts of it because I've experienced it too. I've had that scream moment, but I really like that she leads this off as she's going up to hit to the Babadook. And, and of course, setting the stage, rem- reminding everyone, she has had that moment in the basement with Sam where she was strangling him. He touches her face and says he loves her, and she stops, and he tells her she's got to get it out, and she vomits the Babadook out. It's disgusting, but it's okay that it's disgusting because we understand what's happening. And we think she's won. She's defeated it in that moment, we thought. And then the Babadook invisibly grabs Sam and drags him up the stairs. And that's when she loses. She's like, I'm, I'm done. Like, this is not, I'm, I thought I'd beat you. I hadn't beat you yet. And she goes after him. 
And she starts off by yelling at it. It's yelling at her. It's doing its creepy guttural sound design in this movie, Patrick. I know I'm going to just maybe this isn't the right place, but whatever. We haven't talked about it, but the sound design in this movie is as good as any horror movie I've ever seen in my life. I watched this with the lights off and I turned my sound all the way up because I was alone in my house, which was scary as heck. And it is incredible the way that the creaks and the sound is used. It's not overly done. That is also just like the visuals. Like you mentioned, we only see the Babadook a couple times. And man, when we see him, is it flipping terrifying because of that minimal use of the, the actual showing of him, like on the ceiling, slinking around and stuff. But it's the same thing with the sound, the knocks on the door. I mean, it feels like it's coming out of your house. And, and it's the way it screams and it's that guttural, low growling sound. And she responds to that with the you are nothing and that. It, it's it's escalating. It's getting stronger. And she says, you are nothing. She repeats herself. That is naming your grief. Like that is, that is telling it. I understand you. I see you. And I am no longer going to let you control me. Like I'm taking ownership of my feelings and my thoughts back. And that's how she beats it. And it starts by telling it what it is and then screaming it down and, uh, and we think of it in our house is called, we think of it as naming your feelings. And it's a concept that we've done with our kids now for a while and have seen really good results. I heartily recommend it. We try to model this behavior. And it's hard. It's a hard thing to kind of switch gears and start doing at first. But when you're frustrated with someone in the house and the family and you don't want to answer a question or you, you ask your child, how was school today? They say, fine. And you can tell something's wrong. You say, what do you, what, what happened? Instead of what happened, you say, how are you feeling right now? You know, I'm feeling sad. Well, why are you feeling sad? Well, I'm feeling sad because such and such called me this name and letting them start to understand that feeling that they're having and not just the result of or the, the cause of the feeling and analyze it. And really just being able to accurately pinpoint for yourself what you're feeling at a moment is never a bad thing. It's never wrong. It's, it's always helpful. Um, and it's not bad to have any feeling in my opinion, Patrick. I think that it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be frustrated. The actions that can result from those feelings can be bad, can be harmful can be negative, but it starts by understanding you're having that feeling and then telling it what it is and owning it. And then you can save yourself from having those bad actions as a result of it, which is what Amelia does here. It's a, it's a brilliant ending. It's, it's an amazing ending and I absolutely love it. Yeah. And I think more than anything, it's an ending that also works as a start, not for another movie, but for a new life for these guys. Um, and I, I mentioned earlier, part of the, the, the celeb being able to celebrate his birthday on the day that is the one of the most tragic, if not the most tragic in her life. I love that we get kind of a, a parallel of early in the movie. He blurts out how his dad died and we see it as like awkward. Oh my gosh, how could you say that? And she tries to hide it. And in this moment he says almost the exact same thing verbatim and she puts her arm around him and she says, he's a lot like his dad. Just says what's on his mind. 
she champions that she celebrates it because she sees her husband and her son and she validates who he is, which I think is a fantastic exclamation point to their relationship. And I love that it leaves us with hope. I really do. I love that it, it, it leaves us with that sense that um, good things can happen from that, even if we have to keep our grief at bay. Yep, absolutely. She she switches it from it being all about her husband's death that day to her son's life. Right. And that's accentuating the positive. <laughs> in every single way so I, sure. I think it's it's a great way to end the film for them and it gives you hope i love that i love that you brought that up yeah well that should do it for this episode of feeling film uh we're going to take a couple of days off to rest our voices it's been a busy week but we'll be back next week at our regular time to cover the 1952 musical singing in the rain as chosen via poll by our facebook group members excited about that there will also be singing on the podcast. That could singing be singing on the podcast. Yeah, that's a pretty much guarantee on that one. What a beautiful <laughs> feeling. Okay, sorry. <laughs> For those of you who I'm can't... happy again. This is who I have to work with, people. This is who I have to work with. <laughs> singing, singing on the podcast. <laughs> it's a great segue into championing our patron subscribers because this will help kind of maybe alleviate some of the the frustration I have to deal with a singing co-host. Um, having, having patron supporters actually helps that. Uh, for those of you who can't wait to hear more of us and our patrons of the show, feel free to check out the bonus content that we dropped along with this episode where we try to outduel each other in female film-centric trivia. Um, just a quick host note, there are no pop figures on the line for this event. My pockets are empty right now, and I don't think I could afford another loss at this point. I've got a decent lead in our March Madness, and I'm hoping, hoping that I can make a comeback. <laughs> I bet you are. <laughs> Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and uh, we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.